Welcome to the Tom Nelson podcast. I have Mark Morano here. Uh, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started? I'm a, uh, my background is as an investigative journalist and a communications major, uh, which of course drives climate activists crazy. He's not a scientist. Well, neither is Al Gore or John Kerry or Greta Thunberg or anyone else they hold in such high esteem. But I always like to joke, I play a climate, I'm, uh, I'm not a climate scientist, but I do occasionally play one on TV especially in the old days when they allowed debates. They don't, they don't really allow many debates, certainly not on TV, but you'll see, you know, we're seeing a couple now on your program. And uh, I saw, I guess, where Tony Heller debated, uh, boy, his name fails me. Uh, Gerald uh, Kootenay? Gerald Kootenay, Coot yes, yeah. Coot I, I haven't watched the debate yet, but it looks, looks fascinating. Uh, but there's been a couple of things. And the other thing, I guess, few debates have been happening is Andrew Dessler, Texas A&M, has been debating... Alex Epstein and maybe a couple other people, maybe Steve Coonan uh, and a few like that. So it is, you know, it is there is something going on uh, just in the last year. And I haven't quite put my finger on it, but there is there's a movement towards allowing some debate. All, of course, not in any major venue, but they're still happening. But but anyway, that's my background. I, I'm, I come as an investigative journalist. I worked for Rush Limbaugh's TV show when it was in uh, as a Washington, D.C. correspondent back in the mid 90s. And then I went and worked for American Investigator TV. And that's where I started covering even more. I did environmental coverage for Rush Limbaugh. I did the animal rights marches, the Earth Day marches. Uh, and then when, when uh, American Investigator, I did endangered species, agriculture, organic food. And I did uh, wetlands and a whole and Keiko, the killer whale and organic food. So I did a whole series of stuff. And then I culminated with an Amazon rainforest documentary that came out in 2000. And this was during the height of Sting's rainforest concert. And this was the big issue at the time, all of Hollywood. And then climate really took over. My first climate focused interview was 19, I mean, it may have been 1999 or early 2000. I had to look it up. It was with Jerry Malman, a federal government scientist, pretty hostile interview. And I was doing it for the then show American Investigator, but the show ended up, the network, you know, we got canceled before that episode ever aired. So I never actually did that, but I ended up going to Cybercast News Service, CNS News. And that's when I started covering the environment climate beat full time and going to all the United Nations summit, went to the Rio Earth Summit and the Montreal Climate Summit in Argentina. And then from there, I went to work in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, um, for then ranking member, or then chairman Jim, Jim Hinoff, who later became ranking member. And he just retired, by the way, a couple of weeks ago. So my hat off to him for being the most phenomenal United States senator on any of these issues. If people say, you know, all it takes is one man with courage, and he made a difference. He, he stood up to Lindsey Graham and John McCain when they were trying to do the Republican cap and trade bills. He was all alone. And then by the time ClimateGate hit, everyone joined him. And of course, even the Democrats didn't support Obama's climate deal in the end. In 2000, you know, it passed, barely passed the House. It took two votes, Nancy Pelosi bribing members. This is in June of 2009. It passes right after I left the Senate. And then Harry Reid never submits it for a vote because a coalition of liberal Democrats led by Al Franken of Minnesota said they wouldn't support the climate bill because other Democrats who had voted in the House had such blowback in their districts. But of course, none of that matters now because they don't actually care about Congress anymore. Demo they don't need no stinking democracy. But anyway, that's a little bit of my background. Then I left the Senate, started climatedepot.com, and that's where I am now, a daily news information site. And I've been told it looks like a relic of the 1990s. We're still trying to work. I've had like multiple webmasters and we're still trying to update the and freshen up the look. Uh, so stay tuned on that. So, yeah, it's packed with good data. I think later I might read a couple of quotes about you on there, or maybe okay. I should read them now. 
Uh, okay, sure. <laughs> I, someone said uh, you're perhaps the most notorious climate denier in the U.S. And there's uh, one from Gavin Schmitz. Uh, Mark is a reminder, if one was needed, that most climate deniers are sociopaths. Yeah. There's no mode of discourse that will make Morano suddenly stop being an awful person. So, but <laughs> that must have hurt your feelings or no? Well, it did. Well, you know, I was just came back from Egypt two weeks ago. I got back from the Sharm El Shakedown, Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt for the UN Climate Summit, COP27. And for the first time in my life, I, I'd seen him before in person, but I saw Seth Bornstein, mm -hmm. the Associated Press reporter. And I walked up and I just said, I've never met him. I was on, I had my Bluetooth and I was talking to my daughter at home in the United States, I was in Egypt. And I walk up and I said, oh, hold on to my daughter. And I said, oh, hi, Seth, Mark Morano. And I reached out, shook his hand. I go, I've never actually met. I go, I do Climb Devil, good to meet you. And he started, he was talking to like two or three other people. He went on, it was this is outside his press, you know, his press building at the, at, at the summit. We were inside the summit. And he went on a just verbal trashing of me. I can't believe it. Why did you make me? He kept looking at his hand. Why? I'd never have shaken your hand if I'd known it was you. I can't believe it. You are anti-science. You're a climate denier. You're a loathsome person. I can't believe it. No one is worse than you. Wow, the only person worse than you is junk science. Steve Malloy is the only person worse. So I, I was a little disappointed. But I was. I, I didn't push back or anything. I was as nice as could be. My daughter's in the phone saying, Dad, are you all right? Is everything okay? Because she heard this guy screaming at me. And he just went on and on about you know, I can't believe that you're probably going to write about this, aren't you, that I'm screaming about you. So, no, I didn't write about it. I, I told I told Steve Malloy about it. He wrote it up and then I retreated that. But but he was really upset. He just kept looking at his hand saying, I can't believe it. I've never would have shaken your hand. And I actually did. I felt bad that he shook his hand. And he actually said, you've done nothing but attack me. You're vicious. And I go, actually, I apologize the last time. He's like, hey, you apologize one time out of whatever. And I did apologize one time because I sort of baited him. This was about three years ago. And he responded with all this vitriol on Twitter. And then I felt bad about it because I was just a cheap shot by my part. So I actually publicly apologized and he accepted my apology. And that was really the last interaction we had until the confrontation, which I thought was going to be a friendly confrontation. Yeah, you never know. How, you know. What's funny about it is I'm punching up, meaning I'm just a blogger and a staff of U.S. Senate when I was going after him. He's the freaking number one Associated Press global warming reporter, has been for decades. And he lets himself get all bent out of sorts by critics like me and Steve Malloy. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem balanced to me. Uh, th that like is... yeah. <laughs> there is another quote out there, though, on the other side that uh, from skeptic uh, Stephen Hayward of Powerline. Morano is truly the Pete Rose and Hank Aaron of climate contrarians. I like that one because I have oh, described good. you as the uh, the Michael Jordan of uh, climate skeptics. Oh, right. As to my family members. Yeah, you, you just do a fantastic uh, job of this. Oh, um, well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate but, it. I mean, you know, it's weird because these days I pretty much just do media. I mean, I do hour long like interviews like this. And I do Fox News. I do One America. I do Newsmax. I do a whole blaze, all these shows. And it's almost like on a daily basis. So if you notice, I do I do some agitation, but I hardly can have time to do special reports. So what I end up doing instead of writing columns and op eds, I'll just pull quotes of what I'm saying, thinking. So I become a verbal, uh, a verbal reporting machine on a website and on Twitter. And that, that's, you know, that's what's different, I think, about my site is you'll see a lot of uh, media coverage and quotes in my coverage. And also a lot of, you know, I try to find the diamond in the rough. And one thing I found here was today was watching Tucker Carlson's show last night buried in his opening monologue was a quote from Apple, uh, Tim Cook, the CEO, 
who actually said that they share China's values on climate change and how great China's been. And they, and they have all this, ad, you know, there's incredible quotes. I had never known. They're from 2017. So, of course, I made that into a stone, broke it out into its own special report. And then, of course, that's really a big deal right now, especially considering Apple is helping the communist Chinese government repress its people mm -hmm. during the COVID protest. They're doing they're doing their version of Justin Trudeau's uh, Canadian crushing of the Canadian protesters. What's odd is Justin Trudeau is is is, is uh, defending the Chinese protesters, but he didn't defend his own protesters in Canada. That's a little hard to follow that logic. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how do you spend your time in that? Do you uh, do the updates of your website yourself and you do your own Twitter updates and you're writing books and doing movies and media appearances? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, everything changed for me with the movie. I mean, my my site, if you go back before Climate Hustle One, which came out in 2000, uh, 2016, I used to do regular reporting, special reports, long you know, you know columns and op-eds and blah, blah. And as it's evolved, when I got into script writing and then writing three books in three and a half years, it just it's gotten to the point now where I'm almost completely an agitator site where I, aggregator site where I and agitator. But I, I just pull from other people. I figure there's so much material out there. The last thing people need is me generating some new story because they, they can't even keep track of it all. So that's what I try to do is be that clearinghouse. And on Twitter. I've even you know uh, diverted even more from climate energy, and I've even gotten complaints from some of the you know people. I at one point embedded my Twitter on my Climate Depot page. I immediately heard from a lot of my older you know these were meteorologists and other people who followed my site for years saying, "Don't bring politics. Why are you talking about COVID? Why are you talking about vaccines?" So it's an interesting you know trying to do a mix, and even that I'm still trying to. If you look at Climate Depot, it has evolved into a anti-COVID lockdown, anti-mask mandate, anti-vax, uh, and a great reset website, because that's because climate has now evolved into all those issues. So I almost need a new name these days, and I haven't come up with the ultimate name, but uh, you know, Climate Depot and come up with a new name and keep to make two, the two websites sort of merge together. I have to figure that out. But it's really the whole debate has changed on me. But to answer your question, I don't spend as much time reporting like I used to at all. It's all essentially media and, and either writing books or and and do as a news analyst. And that's where things have really evolved for me. Okay. I think that I kind of do some of that myself. I don't really produce long form reports of any kind, but my position yeah. is there's so much good content out there that it's good to have some people just pointing to it. So people yes, can find exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another question about your media appearances is how much time do you spend preparing? Do you just, is it off the cuff? It looks like it's off the cuff and you can just <laughs> do this uh, anytime, anywhere. Is that true? Well, when it's a new topic, I always yeah. spend a lot, you know, like every time you do a show like Fox and Friends or Tucker or Jesse Waters primetime or a Newsmax show, if it's a new topic, meaning new, meaning something I'm not doing like my fifth interview of the day on, on something, I will, I will actually go through and do a deep dive research, check my archives, look at, I have a, I have a thing called, um, boy, I can't find the name. But anyway, it's a news aggravator site where I go through and I can do keyword searches and get all the latest information, all the latest reporting on something. And I, most of these shows, particularly Fox News, demands a, um, a talking points before you go on. So I'll come up with on all the talking points. And then once I send them to the producer, and then I'll go over it. Then I'm always, the difference I think between uh, you know, what I do now, what I almost exclusively focus on is whatever the content is, I always try to work it in like I'm a stay, I, not I hate to say stand up comedian, but I try to put in humor and entertainment value of everything I say, because 
to me, nothing's more boring than going on and talking, you know, straight politics, straight policy wonk or science and data. I have to come up with analogies, something I think is humorous, funny, at least somewhat witty. Um, and that's what I end up doing after I send the talking points so that when I go on the show, I try to have quips and try to draw analogies. And that's and that's really what I do. And then once I do that for that one topic, then I don't prepare. And it's just I try to make each interview a little different, a little unique and go through it. But it's really amazing, though, you know, even with all the shifts in media and everything else. The old days, I used to get on MSNBC, CNN. I used to be on debates, Piers Morgan, you know, multiple times, a Don Lemon show, multiple times, debating the Sierra Club, debating Bill Nye. I would be on, uh, you know, even Fox News debating Bill Nye and others. But they just, all that dried up pretty much with the election of Donald Trump because the media decided very clearly, very openly, that we can never allow someone like Donald Trump to be created again. We can't tolerate science denial. So they just booted off not only climate skeptics, but most conservatives, even on all these networks. They, you know, even shows like Crossfire no longer exist, where you can have any opposing opinions. It just it became to the establishment media, it became this is the only view, and it's misinformation if you don't, because we can't allow another Trump. So that happened, but it's amazing because, you know, I've, it's uh, like Fox has evolved. Like, it's very hard for me to get on Fox News during the day because it's more corporate, not very friendly to climate skepticism, not friendly to the Great Reset. The primetime lineup loves that stuff. Fox and Friends generally loves that stuff. The weekend shows love that. Dan Bongino loves that stuff. So there's a lot of shows you can get on, but but the it's not like it used to be where you could get on a midday Fox News show. They just don't. It's very rare. They'll, have, they'll go with someone like a Beyond Lomborg because he's the one who says, you know, climate's a problem and, you know, it's a big problem, but we you know, we don't have to panic. And they, they're, they're looking for that kind of nuance or even a Michael Schellenberger during the day. But it's uh, interesting how that all works. And, of course, the other networks, it's completely, uh, you know, there's no chance of ever getting on those anytime soon again, unless they think they can make a fool of you like uh that's the only way they would ever have you on if you were in some kind of scandal and then they would invite you on to like show what a bad example you are. You think the pendulum's going to swing back the other way or what do you see happening in the next 10 years? Any ideas? Uh, that's a good question. I just can't imagine this is going to continue. I mean, I grew up loving the show Crossfire with Tom Braden, Pat Buchanan, um, and then later Robert Novak. And then I can't remember the guy's name, Michael Kinsley. And then even Hannity and Combs was a fun show. I used to do that regularly back in the OOs, if that's a thing with, uh, you know, with Hannity and, um, Alan, uh, what's his name? The old, uh, debating partner. I think he's died, but since anyway, but, uh, that I, I just think people, there's a hunger for that, even though it's very theatrical and, and in many ways shallow on those kind of shows. Uh, in, in some regard, I still think there's a hunger for that uh, because this, this isn't working. I mean, it's just it's sort of nonsense. You know, you have your extremes on all these channels. They hate to say extremes, but you just have, you know, the one point of view. Certain shows can cross over that. And I think certainly Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, um, Jesse Waters does that in a way where they feature sort of they'll have fun with it and occasionally have a hostile guest on. That's good. Uh, but it's it, I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I think you know, social media. I tried out. I can't even remember the names. I tried out mm -hmm. Parler. Yeah. And I just hated the idea of the echo chamber. And not only that, but I've tried out Rumble. And I, and I honestly, here's my comment on this. We deserve conservatives, libertarians deserve to be, uh, you know, censored and silenced and deplatformed when our alternatives suck at tech. I mean, I have Rumble 
you can't save a video for later. There's no way to download a video, which takes away 90% of anything I'm going to do. Because if I have the paper YouTube, I can save it for later, watch later category. If I have YouTube subscription, I can download it, watch it later on a plane, anywhere I am. That's the kind of stuff. I haven't seen that. Parlor still wasn't intuitive, didn't make sense. I haven't even tried a lot of the other ones. But I just feel like Twitter is very well laid out. We'll see. I'm very disappointed in uh, about this, uh, uh, Elon Musk so far. Not because I have any affinity for Alex Jones, but his reason for not putting Alex Jones on was about his dying kid in his arm. So we're still seems like we're still subject to the whim, emotional whims of a billionaire without any clear cut free speech policy on Twitter. So I'm not overly optimistic that that Musk is going to make massive changes, but I think it's all going to be good changes for the better. We'll see. And then maybe if it gets taken off the Apple store, I'm almost hoping Apple does take off Twitter. Because then it would be game on, Elon Musk versus big tech. And possibly this could force court cases and change and wake up the public. And maybe that would be the kind of chaos we need. You know, I sound like uh, Rob Emanuel. We have to take advantage of that crisis. But we'll see how it goes. Did you talk? want to talk in general about what you've seen over the last 20 years in terms of how the climate debate has shifted? Or Sure. Uh, when I started... I remember being in, um, the, uh, the, the, I can't remember what number cop it was, but it was in Argentina. It was in uh, uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. It's probably 2004. And I remember there was a big Arctic report out at the time. And the, the, the UN was still pushing this, you know, the, the idea of like, well, the science is getting stronger. They're, they're still doing that, but there was more of an openness. And even 2006, I was able to debate Regenda Pachari. I, I myself, as a spokesman for, for the United the U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, got to share a stage hosted by the U.N. at a U.N. climate summit in Nairobi, Kenya. I mean, it was amazing. They actually, you know, and it was covered by the Associated Press. It was amazing how much climate skepticism, how far they've censored us since then. And at the time, we felt we were being censored heavily anyway. But... So it's evolved from actually being somewhat fair. And even Peter Jennings, ABC News would talk about, you know, climate skeptics. They would feature him and interview him and and the CNN and the BBC. And it was in, it was amazing. And up until, you know, that happened up uh, through ClimateGate, I would say. But actually, it was around what happened was it's, they started tightening up the debate uh, right after that 2007 New York City debate, Gavin Schmidt against Philip Stott and Richard Lindzen. Uh, and they basically said that they got, and, and uh, what's his name, Michael Crichton, the climate alarmists got their rear ends handed to him. Gavin Schmidt, who's the lead global warming scientist at NASA, then he was a number two under uh, uh, James Hansen. He actually said, we should never do these debates again. They don't serve our interests. We were outperformed. We were outcharmed, et cetera, et cetera. And shortly after that, you had the spectacle of Roy Spencer and Gavin Schmidt on John Stossel. You can watch the video that uh, Gavin Schmidt refused to appear. This is a couple of years after that debate. He refused to appear on the same screen with Gavin with Roy Spencer because he didn't want to legitimize climate skepticism. So they'd have these rotating dancing chairs where Gavin Schmidt would get up. But anyway, in 2000, uh, I believe it was 2009, uh, the for former CBS news anchor at the time, Scott Pelley, said, we're not going to interview any more climate deniers for the same reason we wouldn't interview a Holocaust denier. So that became sort of the, the, the beginning of that chill that became heavily. And I have a whole chapter in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, on this and how they literally compared climate deniers to Holocaust deniers. So anyone who says, oh, that's nonsense, that's just a phrase. No, we actually have about, I think it's 22 examples of them literally saying climate denial is akin to Holocaust denial. And, you know, they, they go through it. But anyway, so I think the debate in terms of science, 
uh, we've always, I've always, as a layperson, non-scientist, have gone after the consensus claims. I always did my focus when I testified in Congress to the House. I testified on the whole scam that is the UN climate process and how it's, you know, these are hand-picked scientists by the United Nations. Anyone who dissents gets thrown off the off the committee or silenced. And also, uh, you know, the, the underlying reports actually have a lot of good summaries in them, but no one pays attention because the bureaucrats and political leaders and scientists have to agree line by line on these summaries, which then sanitize it. Um, but in terms of the actual debate, I don't know that the debates actually change. In many ways, I feel like the debate's gotten stronger for climate skeptics because we've had a lot of people come our way. Everyone from Steve Coonan to Judith Curry to Michael Schellenberger, the father of the original Green New Deal, Times Hero of the Environment. So we have a lot more progressive left-wing names have come out. And I think uh, you know the idea of we're in a CO2 famine has caught on. I don't think that was as big a story back then. And I think the other thing is the extreme weather. I was actually at the Bali United Nations Climate Summit on a UN side, a day trip side junket with John McCain's climate guy. And I can't remember his name at the moment. I could look it up. But we actually had a conversation in a UN bus. This would have been November 2007. And he said, we are now, John McCain was pushing cap and trade at the time for the Republicans. And he said, we're now going to be pushing every storm. And this is all the new science. And I remember laughing. I'm like, who is going to buy that? You're going to try to tie hurricanes and floods and tornadoes to climate change. That's your new thing. And it was. I, I laughed at it, dismissed it. We actually had a big argument about this on the bus. Well, lo and behold, shortly after that, that became the new thing. You know, cl global climate disruption, global warming sort of went out of phase. Climate change became really the talking point. And everything became extreme weather. And we're seeing that now today where these attribution studies and everything. That's one of the other changes that I think happened since the beginning. They never, I mean, if you remember the early days, they actually talked about temperature. Uh, Al Gore talked about polar bears. Now, now I like to say polar bears are disappearing. They're disappearing from Al Gore's books and movies because they're at or near historic population highs, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, according to Inuit uh, in, indigenous people up in the uh, in Alaska and the Arctic. So that kind of stuff, um, that has changed. The polar bears no longer. But I think the other big change in the climate debate is just how it's gone completely wacky. You used to be able to look at, you know, at Al Gore, give Al Gore credit because he actually looked at ice core data, even though his producer, Lori David, flipped the chart and showed, you know, CO2 uh, leading temperature and not, not temperature leading CO2. Uh, in the geologic chart, which she did her scholastic school book, and it was actually Willie Soon who pointed it out, and she was forced to issue a correction to that. But Al Gore, give him credit, he talked about temperature, polar bears, sea level rise. Nowadays, they'll talk about car theft, vehicle uh, theft, home invasion, robberies, uh, crime in general, rapes. They'll talk about white supremacy being the cause of climate change. They'll talk about, you know, whether, I don't know, too many redheaded uh, signs of, of that is more of a sign. And, and it's just gotten to the point where it's absurd. Da all data is racist, according to the Rhode Island professor. It's really just gone so completely off the charts. Solutions, you know, the solution to the climate change is to end white supremacy and defund the police. Uh, and that we've actually had people advocating for this stuff. I mean, it's just such utter nonsense. It's really devolved from a more serious case of public policy to just now like Bonko land. And now, of course, they failed to scare adults. So they've focused all their attention on scaring the hell out of kids. And to a large degree, they've succeeded to a whole generation of kids now. They're the ones going to Capitol Hill saying mom and dad ruined 
you know, the climate and, and, uh, and now we have to live with it. And, you know, now they're suing the governments of the world. Greta Thunberg just suing Sweden. We have kids suing the U.S. government with the blessing of former NASA scientist James Hansen to, to you know, ensure a livable climate, whatever that means. When I look uh, online at uh, Twitter, et cetera, I see so many bonkers claims and so much uh, well-informed pushback. I th I'm seeing a lot of more uh, well-informed yes. people pushing back and saying this stuff is crazy. That makes me happy that I'm thinking the uh, hysteria might be peaking and it might not be able to last another a few decades. But what do you think? I think you're right. In fact, what I'm most impressed with on Twitter is I see some of the scientific charts that people, people like meteorologist uh, Chris Martz, who's actually a meteorology student, but he's become one of the most articulate voices in the climate skepticism. But some of the charts now that they do for the general public, much more reader friendly, clever, well done, uh, and side by side comparisons. I, I'm just impressed with that because I do a lot of presentations uh, around the country and I, and I like to have simple you know, explanations through a visual medium. And I'm really impressed because I remember 10, 15 years ago, the scientific charts we had were horrible, unreadable by the general public. What I mean by horrible is they're just too technical to be of much use. And people like Tony Heller, by the way, have been incredible uh, with you know making accessible not only the charts, but I credit him with his phenomenal uh, media archive research. Uh, I think he's without peer. You know, they'll say, oh, there's an unprecedented storm in Georgia or there's a, a drought in California. He'll go back and within minutes and he can show you articles from 50, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, where it was worse, higher death tolls, worse. And no matter what region of the world, and he, and, and he does it in a way that's not just the text. He has the actual textual article that would appear in print, which is, I think, much more effective than just a digital writing of an article. Yeah, his work is fantastic. I don't know if you've seen, I think it's called realclimatetools.com, his new tool out there. I, I'll have to double check that. I'm going to check that right that. now if you have a minute, just to make sure, because that is a fabulous tool. I have yeah. not seen that. No. Yeah, realclimatetools.com. It allows you to uh, easily look at the daily station temperatures. When people say Minneapolis is the hottest it's ever been, blah, blah, blah. You can super easily check stuff like that. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's very good stuff. How has the reception been for you uh, with in-person talks? If you go talk at a college, et cetera, do you have a lot of problems with people trying to like not let you speak and uh, talk over I have, you? Yes. Uh, well, the, the 2019 was the worst. I went to Georgetown University and I was the opening speaker and we had, we had other people like Paul Dreesen and the climatologist Pat Michaels. I was the opening speaker. The room had about, I don't know, 70 people in it. This was, uh, you know, the student, I think it was sponsored by the Republican committee or, or Libertarian or, you know, some kind of committee on Georgetown University. And we had the room pretty much full. But what we didn't know is there was about, I don't know, 25 of the people were plants and, and activists. So once I got talking, maybe about eight minutes into my talk, maybe less, five minutes, and this was all on film. And actually John Stossel covered this as well. They started doing the whole chant thing, singing, you know, smearing names, uh, standing up, not letting me speak. I tried to talk over them. It was fun. Then, the, of course, campus police came. They delayed us for about 90 minutes, and then campus police had to remove them finally. And, of course, campus police can't touch anyone or move because then you have all these wealthy parents who will then sue the school. So the kids are pretty much allowed to do whatever the hell they want to do. So we waited, and finally we were able to continue. Um, I've had that. I've had Greenpeace and others come and sort of heckle me at some of these. But generally, uh, you know, generally nowadays, you know, it doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. I mean, there was that whole period 
I can't remember, was it Ann Coulter and a couple other people where they, you know, colleges were banning people and not allowing them on. I feel like that's fit, like died down a little bit. Yeah. So I've done a lot of college tour. I've also done a lot of different groups tour. I spoke out to the, the Silicon Valley Liberty Forum in San Jose, California, and that was covered 90 minutes by C-SPAN Book TV. And I still get, I got emails today. I mean, I get emails all the time. It's amazing how the old established, C-SPAN Book TV is probably the only remnant, the last fragile thread left of the and C-SPAN in general, of the corporate media, what's left of the vestiges of it that still does its original intended job, which is to cover sort of public policy debates. But I got on C-SPAN Book TV three times, and that was huge at these various events. One time I was in South Dakota talk, uh, and an interview by C-SPAN Book TV, and another time I was just at the Heritage Foundation, they came out and covered it. So I give kudos to, to C-SPAN TV, but but yeah, my talks have been all over. I've been doing, I did a book tour from August through the November of this year, the most travel, and that's saying something that I've ever done in my life. I was completely wiped out, crisscrossed the country multiple times, California and back, went to London uh, for a cl rare climate debate. That was a, another rare thing. But of course, that wasn't televised and there was no coverage of it. But uh, well, it was a little bit of coverage of it. But Lord Moncton and I, Christopher Moncton, debated at a, a uh, green energy forum. And the most shocking thing about that I actually did a lot of mental prep for this. If I don't know if you know this, but Sam Donaldson used to speak every year at CPAC, and he was seen as the evil nemesis, liberal media of Ronald Reagan. And of course, he was beloved by the C-SPAN audience. So I actually thought back to all those times I'd seen uh, Sam Donaldson, and I decided to have a different tack. And I talked with Moncton and I, we were as friendly and nice and open as we could possibly be, complimentary, and we gave our points as hard-hitting as we possibly could. And it turned out the audience loved the debate so much at this Green Energy Conference, uh, what Greta would call the Greenwashers, that they voted to extend our debate 15, 20 minutes, and the speakers that followed us gave up their slots so that the audience could have more of our debate. And we got along with the other debate. Other debaters ended up agreeing with us that net zero was a scam and un untenable. Other people talked about how the electric car was, all these banning gas-powered cars was completely unrealistic. So we found a lot of common ground, but also didn't have to compromise. So I really tried, and I think it went, it went incredibly well. That's the kind of thing uh, I was really surprised at. I'm not used to that kind of reception. I'm used to the kind of reception Seth Borenstein gave me, you know, where you, you get insulted okay. and yelled at. So is there a video available online now of that debate? No, there is no it. video. No. I checked. I do have a bad audio of it, and I was debating whether to put it, but it's, it was an audio from me that I recorded, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really crappy. But I'm still hoping. They said eventually they'd put a video up, but I haven't seen it, and they were videotaping, but I have a feeling there's a lot of forces behind the scene that don't want that video up. There's a bit, the written report of it by David Whitehouse of the Global Warming Policy Foundation and uh, Net Zero Watch. He did a long report. Actually, it was titled Climate Skeptics Charm uh, Green Investors, which is how he described it, which I thought was a great description because you know, even after people all coming up and thanking me for appearing, saying they didn't agree with me, and some said they did agree with me, went back and forth. We estimated 40% of that audience agreed. These aren't necessarily climate activists. These are CEO entrepreneur, investor, businessmen who want to make money off of this. So they don't really buy into the science. They just buy into the solution. So that's why I think we had 40% of the audience rooting for us and applauding us when Moncton and I would make our scientific and policy points. Yeah, you do a fantastic job of talking to people who should really hate you, but... Uh... <laughs> well, I just got invited today. Andrew Dessler invited me back to speak to his class at Texas A&M. 
he lets me do like a 20 minute presentation and then I take Q and A and he always has so much fun with it because these are his students and, I, and they all completely agree with him. I literally fail every time to convince even a single student. And he has such fun with that on Twitter. Basically what a, what a loser I am that I can't, you know, I can't sway his audience of students, but I, apparently I can't. So I still will do it. You got to keep trying. And I'm going to try this year with a little more humor and, uh, self-deprecation, but we'll see. I, he's asked me to speak again in the spring semester. I actually, I may go in person is what I'm actually thinking of doing, if he'll have it now that COVID's over. I'm impressed that he does that, but he, he wants to do it to mock you, I guess, huh? But he's still well, doing yeah, it. Yeah. He, he did the same thing with uh, Fred Singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, 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 he I, I can't, can't fault Andrew Dessler. He mm-hmm. says a lot of wacky things. I don't agree with him. I think he says a lot of science things wrong. However, He's been willing to debate Alex Epstein. He's been at colleges mm-hmm. debating. I believe it was Steve Coonan. He's one of the few. Who's, he went on uh, Joe Rogan yes. as well. Um, he's he got the courage of his convictions. So I give him credit for that. Unlike the Catherine Hayhoes and the Gavin Schmitz and mm-hmm. you, know, you name it, Michael Manns, et cetera. He's mm-hmm. willing to go out there and he's willing to show the other side. Now, he's willing to show the other side to show that we're buffoons and idiots. So that's my role. I can I can do that. Hey, I can do that just as easy as the next guy. No, but we'll see how it goes this time. <laughs> So, I don't uh, expect to convert any of his students. Let's put it that way. Uh, what advice do you have for the rest of us to try to be more effective in uh, getting our, our arguments across online or in person? What do you think? Well, you do a great job. I love the way you know you always do the you know we're saved and uh, the idea of you know, trying to save the earth is the, is the greatest scam ever. You you have a great way of rephrasing everything and putting it back in their face. So you're I would say that people copy your style. Copy Tony Heller style, mm-hmm. Chris Mart style. Steve Malloy is phenomenal as well. He can mm-hmm. in a few in a short tweet he can reframe a whole debate and do like a retweet. Uh, what do they call that? Quote tweet, a quote mm-hmm. yeah. tweet where he'll reframe it and then put the original article. Um, I don't consider myself a particularly effective tweeter. I just sort of tweet out what I'm doing on my website and all that. I don't. I'm not particularly clever on Twitter. Uh, but I do try to cover obscure stuff. And I like to cover, one of the things I like to do is put in the other side, whether it's a COVID alarmist or a climate alarmist and put up, I do a lot of, my philosophy has always been, and I did this at Climate Depot, put up a lot of stuff unchallenged that goes against everything you believe in. Like I just tweeted the other day about someone who said, I'm the, I'm the fakest expert on Fox News. And they did a whole video showing all these clips of me and how bad I am. And I just retweet that stuff without comment. Because I want to be fair, so, you know, I don't. You know, I don't want to get a big head and show what everyone how people are attacking me. And so, I would say have a little self-deprecation and uh, and follow the examples of some of the people I gave you because they're really good at this, especially in the climate energy world. And also, okay. Alex Epstein is very good. Patrick Moore is another first-rate one. Uh, his his tweets. Um, Judith Curry can say some good things as well. Although she she's more on the you know more of a hard science. Uh, tweets on that but there's a lot of good people out there to, to follow on this okay and th- then in person you suggest using a little bit of humor that uh, yes I, yeah. I really think because the thing is it's climate energy is such a boring topic to the i'm talking about the public i'm not talking yes. about you know i mean when you go to like a you know when i go to a, a general conservative group or i go and talk to a uh i've, I've been to uh like kiwanis clubs and all those you know those uh, those groups you got you got to I don't want to say dumb it down, but you just got to, you can't get technical and you got to give them the perspective. So what I've always believed is you have to include in your talk what the other side says, frame it their way, and then deconstruct it. You can't just go in and say, this is, there's no emergency because X, Y, Z. You got to really reshow what they said. I think it just makes it more legitimate in a way. 
And I think in a way that's harmed me over the years because rather than creating my own narrative, I've always sort of tended to have a reactive narrative, a reactive uh, PR strategy where I like to just let the person say it in as articulate a way as they can and then go directly after it. Like my philosophy in a debate is if someone says like a series of things that are completely opposite of what you say, it does almost no one any good if you come out with sort of five opposite things but don't address anything they said. I would actually say to hell with whatever I had planned on saying, I'm gonna take the five things they said and go one at a time and deconstruct it. That's always been my way of uh, approaching it because I think people need to hear, because they've already heard that argument that the other side has made on climate so many times. And whether we're talking about COVID or lockdowns or grandma killer or vaccine mandates, that whether it's that as well, I'd rather go with what they have, go with what the public's heard, but then go through it and deconstruct it as opposed to coming out with something that's completely different and doesn't really address head on what the other person said. I might be getting too esoteric here, but that's sort of the way I've always tried to debate. I, I always sort of let the other side lead, um, lead with the argument because I'd rather deconstruct because we're considered a minority position. I don't want to I don't want to uh, just come out and say, oh, this is all a hoax and this is the way it is, because that's not going to really resonate unless you specifically address. And then what's the best way to address it is to go exactly with what the audience just heard and work on it that way. What other major points would you like yeah, to make? Well, here's the biggest thing I was going to say. The entire climate debate changed in March of 2020. And this is what my book, The Great Reset, is about. Literally, you know, you had Jamie Margolis, the teen climate activist, say, if we can shut down the world for a virus, we can do the same thing for climate. John Kerry, you know, COVID and climate, the parallels are screaming at us. Al Gore, we need a great reset this time on climate. World Economic Forum came out. That literally changed everything. Because what happened was the Green New Deal was introduced in Congress 2019. You know, remember, AOC was elected 2018, rode that whole wave. And then there was no vote ever scheduled, no hearings, no... Um, uh, no town hall meetings, no constituent meetings, no switchboards lighting up. No, you know, there was just nothing. They didn't need to do it. After COVID came in 2020, March of 2020, they realized we don't need to have this voted on and go down in flames probably the same way, you know, all the old cap and trade went down multiple times and defeat even with Democrat super majorities. So they decided we don't need this. We don't want it. We can use emergency powers. We can do this. And Joe Biden's elected and he does announces every age, cabinet agency of the federal government is going to be a climate agency. He announces all the executive orders on climate. He announces uh, the, the Treasury Department is going and the Securities and Exchange Commission are going to be going after you know, CO2 monitoring essentially of companies. And he announces that they're going to be essentially ESG style defunding of fossil fuel programs, fossil fuel projects. Through a banking, you'll get higher interest rates, sort of the version of a Chinese social credit system. This is what they put in place. So you never needed to do that. And of course, they do the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, a, a misnamed thing just to get $370 billion in climate you know, spending and solar wind. It's basically Obama's stimulus number two, except on mega steroids in terms of the size and scope. But what happened was the entire world realized, hey, we want to ban the gas-powered cars, which is starting. We want to start banning meat eating. We want to go after high-yield agriculture. 
Uh, why would we ever put this up for a vote? The likelihood is it's going to get defeated in every possible nation you put that up for a vote. So they're like, we don't need to anymore. We have a thing called corporate government collusion and we have emergency powers and we have a public that has had a psych op with COVID lockdowns that are just so reeling and, and in chaotic, disjointed with, with supply chain and, and deficits and debt and uh, the printing of money and uh, you know just all the economic stress and inflation that they just decided, let's go one at a time. And this is how the climate debate, instead of like having a vote on, let's, should we ban cars? No, Gavin Newsom did an executive order, which you know said gas powered cars at the end. A unelected California Air Resources Board announced 2035 was the end date for the production sale of gas powered cars. 17 states trigger law following it. Pete Buttigieg likes it so much, they're considering the same type of executive order or executive administrative state action on the federal level. Again, not like Congress is going to come up with a bill. Should we ban gas powered cars by 2035? That was never even a part of the question. 10 years ago, that would have been part of the question. Then when it comes to it, so this was a corporate government collusion. Then you have national major corporate banks announcing that they're not going to fund gas powered cars anymore, car loans for gas powered cars. Then you have Nicholas Stern, the former head of the World Bank at a World Bank meeting say, we're going to stop the World Bank and global finance needs to stop the production of gas powered cars. So you see how that works? Gas powered cars are facing certain doom. Why? Because of corporate government collusion and the bypassing of democracy. Not one thing I mentioned is anyone talking about, we're going to put this for a vote. Even the Republican contract with America was never like, like we're going to not allow, we're going to mandate that everything be voted on, and, you know, banning of meat. So let's talk about meat. Bill Gates, America's single largest farmland owner, his stated public goal repeatedly is no one in the Western nation should ever eat uh, farm-grown agricultural meat again. He's investing billions in lab-grown meat uh, that is going to they get stem cells from a cow or sheep and fetal blood, and then they put it in a lab and let it grow into this amorphous blob with no immune system. It's got to be pumped with antibiotics. And then they add texture and dye, and then they get a 3D printer. I'm not making any of this up. The World Economic Forum brags that you can print several kilograms an hour of meat from these... Uh, from this sort of goo that they're gonna make in the lab that they're growing. And this is how you end meat eating. You also, through net zero goals, have a judge in the Netherlands and a prime minister who comes out of the World Economic Forum, Prime Minister Rudd in the Netherlands, start going after small agriculture in uh, farms in Netherlands. And Netherlands is the number one meat producer in Europe. They're going after them and they're going to be forcing the closure. Right now, we just heard over 3,000 farms have closed, could be up to 12,000 or so. And these are the small family-run generational farms. These aren't the Bill Gates or Chinese or, or big multinational corporations or agribusiness farms that are closing. These are the small mom-and-pop generation farms closing. So they're creating intentional meat shortages. They're creating intentional energy shortages. They're creating intentional car shortages. We're going to be like East Germany now with gas-powered cars banned. We're going to have car shortages. That's the only result. Remember East Germany, they had years to wait for the crappy East German Trabant. We're going to be like Cuba with you know the, the, uh, the uh, vintage car capital uh, of the world now with all these old cars because you're not going to be able to, you know, they'll be banned or if they still sell gas-powered cars, the prices will be going through the roof because of their, there'll be shortages and supply chain and all sorts of new regulations to save the climate. So that's my main point on how climate, the whole climate debate changed. Everything I just mentioned, agriculture, uh, meat, cars, 
uh, even the energy, the energy, you could argue, well, people voted for that. They voted to, for politicians who wanted to do solar and wind, but they voted for a lie. They were conned. They were told solar and wind is replacing fossil fuels. Solar and wind is cheaper. Solar and wind will make us energy independent. Every one of those is a bald faced lie. Solar and wind are better for the earth. Bald faced lie. And so they're realizing it now. Europe is really realizing it now where, you know, firewood is more valuable than gold and all these countries, you know, Europe, England at one point was bragging that they were going to pour concrete into their fracking wells. Oh, planet Earth weeps with happiness. Uh, you know, and, and then, of course, they, they're all become reliant on Russia, 40, 50 percent, depending on the country for Russian energy. And then, of course, you know, I was I was at the U.N. summit and talked to the Ukrainian delegation the first time they were there. And they actually said what Vladimir Putin fears the most is Europe doubling down on green energy. I, I don't know. You can't argue with people like that. If they actually believe that, it's an it's an incredible argument to make uh, because all they're doing is making themselves more reliant on China, making China more powerful. They're digging up the earth. Renewables dig the earth. And I don't mean that in a 1970s Brady Bunch groovy way. I mean, they actually dig the earth. And of course, you have the human rights violations and underage. There's so many different things. But all of that's happening. Uh, and so we so we never really voted on the green energy thing. That's sort of happening now, again, through executive agency. And now Joe Biden is talking, according to the Washington Post, Associated Press, right before the Inflation Reduction Act, they were talking about Biden declaring a national climate emergency. This would literally mean 130 new executive powers, according to the Center for Biological Diversity, who's all for this. And it would also mean that Biden would never have to ever worry about putting anything through Congress. This would also give governors, mayors, the kind of power to do odd even gas days, ban cars, close gas stations. You're talking about limits on airline travel. Um, Eric, uh, the guy who wanted to have Holt a vasectomy, the yeah, Holt house. Yeah. he's the one that said you had to have a um, morally justified reason to fly in a, in a declared climate emergency. That's the mindset. And of course, International Energy Agency came out with these reports, which could only be read as an energy lockdown. The UK government had a report, regulate CO2 as, a, as you would asbestos. So we exhale CO2 and they want to regulate it the same way. These were out of academic universities funded by the UK government. So I put all of this in my book, The Great Reset. I have two chapters, by the way, devoted just to climate. Another chapter devoted to the corruption of science on climate COVID. Um, and then uh, from there, you know, there's a whole bunch of, you know, other, you know, I go through the whole thing from agriculture. And then, of course, it all leads into digital currency. I get into how the United Nations MasterCard and now Visa partnering up to have credit cards now that monitor your carbon footprint and cuts off your ability to spend when you hit your CO2 max. I go into how academics and a peer-reviewed study in Australia uh, are calling for adding de the de death certificate, uh, climate change as a cause of death on your death certificate. I go into the doctor's group in Canada, the head of the emergency room department in a major Canadian hospital, diagnosed the first patient in the world as suffering from climate change. So this is where it's all headed. They're morphing COVID and climate together. The Harvard University actually has a whole thing. Unchecked climate change will lead to more COVID-like viruses. 230 medical journals signed off on this, that we should use the COVID response uh, of fighting COVID, i.e. lockdowns and public health emergencies, as the same template to fight climate change. The World Health Organization has now declared climate change the greatest public health threat of the 21st century. So here's the key, Tom. If you oppose the Green New Deal or the UN Paris Pact or the net zero climate agenda, you're a grandma killer. 
That's what they've done. They've morphed the two together because frankly, and this is a key point, they knew that after COVID, there's no way you could get people scared about climate. They saw how they failed. They already had been going after kids because they failed to convince adults. They saw how COVID cut across ideological party lines. I'd say all the Democrats and half of Republicans were initially afraid of COVID and were you know, compliant with lockdowns and mask mandates and all that. Uh, but they realized that they can't just go back to climate and start trying to scare people about sea level rise or whatever. So they're now morphing the two together. And that's where uh, they're going to make this. So climate is a public health threat. And of course, we know how they deal with that. There's no democracy involved in public health anymore because we're too stupid. And I go back in the book uh, and to Woodrow Wilson's presidency, the idea of the administrative state. This is this is the uh, educated elite from the top universities who believe that we're the unwashed masses. And if we, the public, are left to our own devices, not just in the U.S., but anywhere in the world, we will create inequity, racism, white supremacy, environmental destruction, a climate crisis, that we have to have every aspect of our lives managed in order to avoid that. So that's the, you know, in that part, there are sincere ideologues who believe that. But then, of course, you get in all the corporations and the power hungry politicians and the bureaucrats and the massive ego billionaires and the international groups like World Economic Forum and the UN. And you mix that all together. And that's really the Great Reset. So it, it, where I think climate has led is the Great Reset. And just to give you a simple definition, people always say, how do you define it in a few words? Here it is. The Great Reset. It's bringing one party Chinese authoritarian rule to the once free West through emergency power abuse. We're still living under the COVID emergency. We're still living under 9-11 emergency. I go back to the book uh, from the Roman Republic to the Middle Ages to 1933 Germany. The greatest abuses of human rights by governments against its citizens have occurred during declared uh, emergency declarations. And that's what they wanna do with climate next. And that is where the whole climate debates change. No longer are we dealing with an institution we used to call Congress because it's irrelevant in the climate debate. It is now all these politicians from Justin Trudeau to the Apple CEO to um, uh, the UN climate chief, Christine Figueres, to Tom Friedman, of the New York Times, all those people who praise China's one party rule and Justin Trudeau, I have basic admiration. You have Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, saying that their values align on climate and China has been wonderful and we should praise them for ending poverty. Uh, they ended poverty because of our bad policies, which allowed China because of the promise that once we got more trade with China uh, and removed all these barriers, China would get wealthy and they'd become more like us. Well, what happened was the opposite. China gut helped gut our industrial base and we're becoming more like China now uh, with things, you know, with the Chinese social credit system and following them in lockdowns and emergency powers. So anyway, that's where the climate debate has evolved. It has now evolved really into the Great Reset. And if you don't believe me, you can hear the words of Klaus Schwab, the founder of the of the World Economic Forum, who I have the opening quote of my climate chapter where he says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, the great now that COVID is ending, the next great crisis we will we will attack will be climate change, and that's where they're headed, and that's where they want to again morph COVID and climate together. Okay, very interesting stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, maybe. No, it, this is great stuff. Uh, anything else before we uh, go ahead and wrap up? No, that should do it. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, uh, thank you for this opportunity, and. Uh, 
Uh, I will be refreshing Climate Depot soon, and I will. I, my, I also have a radio show on TNT Radio once a week. I, I call it more like a podcast, but I have a lot of interesting guests on there as well, so people can tune into that. Thank you. That, that sounds great. All right, thank you very much. Talk thank to you, you next Tom. time. Yep. Appreciate Bye. it. Okay.